You're listening to the American Alpine Club podcast, your guide to the climbing community. When Rockfall takes its toll, things get serious. Late in the day on an alpine climb in the Sierra, a microwave-sized block fell and broke the leg of a climber as she stood at a belay 1,500 feet up Mount Emerson. As Inyo County Search and Rescue launched into the mission, they quickly realized that a helicopter evacuation would not be possible. With freezing temperatures setting in and darkness falling, the ground team sprung into action. Ultimately climbing hundreds of feet to the patient and rigging hundreds of feet of static lowering system to get her to a hospital 24 hours later, dodging inclement weather and rockfall hazards along the way. In this episode, we sat down with Todd Vogel, one of the team leads for the mission, to learn about the nitty-gritty details of the rescue, what happens when the weather is too bad for helicopters, and how SAR teams deal with the emotional roller coaster of their work. We are talking to these SAR teams because the AAC and Rocky Talkie have teamed up for another year to offer the Rocky Talkie Search and Rescue Award to the unsung heroes of the outdoor world. Search and rescue teams are often all volunteer, and yet they put their lives on the line to bring stranded and injured climbers home. The award gives back to these incredible figures in our community by sharing their story and offering a grant to help them run their volunteer operations. The 2023 award winners each pulled off an incredibly technical and impressive mission, and Portland Mountain Rescue, Inyo County Search and Rescue, and Chelan County Mountain Rescue deserve all the kudos for these rescues and the many more they accomplish every year. But we're wondering, which mission most inspired you? Help us share the kudos by voting for the most inspiring mission at rockytalkie.com slash pages slash 2023 SAR award. Haven't heard all the stories yet? Make sure you check out the other AAC podcasts featuring each of the winning SAR teams. I'm your host, Hannah Provo. Here's the inside beta on the Mount Emerson Overnight Rescue. Since 1981, outdoor research has created trusted apparel, accessories, and equipment for you to thrive outside. Their award-winning outdoor gear is meticulously researched and tested for outdoor enthusiasts and military users around the globe. Grounded in their values of curiosity, passion, innovation, collaboration, and community, OR strives to create space for all in the outdoors. OR celebrates wins outside at every level, together with their ambassadors, nonprofit partners, and employees. Check them out at outdoorresearch.com. Welcome, Todd, to the podcast. We have you on here today because you're part of Inyo County Search and Rescue, and Rocky Talkie does this awesome award where they financially support search and rescue teams thanks to like the amazing missions that they do. Inyo County Search and Rescue is one of the finalists for this award, and we're here to talk about one of the mission that you guys did that got you nominated for this award in the first place. So can you start us off with introducing yourself, who you are personally, what do you do in daily life, and how did you get involved? Involved in search and rescue. Sure. Well, thanks for having me. My name is Todd Vogel, and I am a career mountain guide. I moved to Bishop in uh, the late '80s to uh, to pursue a career doing that, and managed to make that my work for uh, for many years. And eventually, uh, my wife was working at a, a outdoor shop here in town, so eventually we bought that in 2012. So now I have a foot in both worlds. That is awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh it's it's been it's been good. I have no complaints about how my career wound up. I always knew I would wind up on search and rescue. Uh, I just didn't know when. I was sort of waiting and uh, for the right moment. And I'd had some, uh, I guess, sort of odd experiences with other search and rescue entities over my life. And so on one hand, I thought, uh, I don't know, search and rescue seems a little weird to me. On the other hand, I had a lot of friends here in, in town that were on the team here. And so finally, I decided to uh, pull the trigger and 2015 or so. Yeah, I almost wonder if it was a little bit inevitable. I've heard a lot of guides say that they end up kind of becoming de facto search and rescue sometimes, <laughs> you know? It's true. It's true. You do uh, You do either, uh, either an incident will happen with a group that you're working with, or more commonly, we run into people that have had some sort of issue on, on their, what they're trying to do. Yeah. 
So I also wanted to ask kind of like, tell us about your personal relationship with climbing, with outdoor sports and everything, adventuring and like what you're proud of and goals you have for yourself. <laughs> that's a, that's like, uh, a loaded question. Uh, uh, I guess I'm proud that I have managed to make it to, uh, I turned 60 this fall. I'm proud I've made it here without any injuries that have uh, put an end to things. And so my goals are really to just keep that trend up. Uh, sure, I've got a, a lot of bucket list things, and uh, you know, I can't, I can't see the, uh, can't see the horizon yet, but I can see the curvature of the Earth of a time when uh, I might not be able to do things quite at the level I'm doing them. So, it's funny. The last uh, ten years or so, I have pivoted a little bit away from the climbing that I used to do and focused on uh, ultra running. So, most of my goals are it, it really for me. It's kind of a blend because I think it takes a mountaineer's mindset to uh, to do well with that kind of thing and. I, I, um, I race once in a while, but I really just like adventure running. So I like to get out there and, uh, you know, just see what I can do. I figure my body exists just to carry my head around. So. <laughs> yeah, <I've, laughs> that's fun. <laughs> okay. So tell us a little bit about the structure of the Inu search and rescue team. I can rattle off a list of questions if you want, like, is it all volunteer? That's a softball. How does that <laughs> dynamic play out? What radius do you serve? How does collaboration work? How big is the team? That sort of thing. Okay, so we got like five hours, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Let me uh, let me ju- let me just uh, ramble on a little bit, and then if I, I leave any questions unanswered, you can remind me. So totally. I think the first thing to for listeners to understand is Inyo County is huge and uh, extremely geographically diverse. So we're the third largest in terms of land area in the state of California. I think it's San Bernardino and Riverside counties are bigger in terms of their their uh, land area. We're the nar- ninth largest county in the U.S. in terms of land area. So uh, if you were to drive, in your county is roughly a uh, rectangle in shape. And so if you were going to drive from one rectangle on a diagonal to the other, it's about a six-hour drive. And so if you're uh, unlucky enough to get jury duty in, uh, I mean, even I, when I live in Bishop and, and uh, I have to go to jury duty, it's an hour drive each way. But if you live in Tacopa, it's three hours each way. And so uh, it is, it's vast, but the population's only about 16,000 people. Mm. So it's sparsely populated and we're concentrated just in a, a handful of uh, what you might call cities. Bishop's the biggest city. The quote metropolitan area is about 10,000 people. I think we have, uh, I've kind of lost track, but I think we have nine stoplights. We got a couple of new stoplights in the last five years. So people always ask me what's new in Bishop. And I'm like, well, well, we got a couple of new stoplights and uh, that's, that's always really exciting. <laughs> But to uh, to add to the the geographical sort of setting, the, uh, the Inyo County ranges from the lowest point in the Western Hemisphere, which is Badwater Death Valley, to the highest point, which is Mount Whitney, which is right around fourteen thousand five hundred feet, and we serve that entire space. So Inyo County Search and Rescue is uh, it's incredibly diverse, the train that we serve. Now, if you take Mount Whitney out of the picture, uh, Mount Whitney's our bread and butter, I would say. We, we get uh, the majority of our calls on Mount Whitney in the summer months, and that probably counts for half our calls, consider the whole entire year. But the rest of the year, it's everything in between. And of course, there's plenty of other mountains than Mount Whitney. And so so that's, that's sort of the geographical setting part of the, I guess, the, the background. The next piece is, yeah, we're, we're a volunteer team. And uh, I, I, in my work, well, with, within New County Search and Rescue, we're a member of the Mountain Rescue Association, and we regularly participate in their recertification events, which is a little bit of a tangent. But as part of that exposure, we see a lot of other teams, and there's a recertification thing that you can opt into that happens once a year. And so what I've observed is there's teams work a lot of different ways. And so some are more quasi part of the sheriff department. Some are a little bit more regimented in how they onboard and recruit new members. And so we're just, uh, we're always open. <laughs> so the door is always open. If somebody wants to join, we meet once a month as a part of our regular meetings and anyone can attend as a guest. And then if they decide this is something they want to get into, they can become what we call a candidate. And then they, there's more of a formal process where they have to do a specified number of trainings within, uh, we don't mandate what those trainings consist of. We offer the trainings. And so they need to take, I think it's, uh, they have an 18 month period to finish their onboarding trainings and they need to do 12 and it can just be anything that we offer. So, you know, field trainings like technical or search or medical. So, so at the end of a, a candidate's uh, onboarding process, they become eligible for what we look at as a vote. And uh, it's a, 
hands up who else to vote this person on and everybody always gets voted on. So it's really just sort of a formality, but it's a, it's a fun, it's a fun process. So we make them leave the room and pretend like, oh, there's this big thing. And then they have to remember the, the gate code. So, uh, <laughs> Very fun. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess I wanted to have you add on to that with, are you guys mostly operating alone? Are you collaborating with the sheriff's department? Like how does, um, or, or like fire, teams or anything like that? How does collaboration work or does that not really end up happening? Sure. That's a good question. We work very closely with the Union County Sheriff. And although we are legally a a separate nonprofit entity, they are the people who dispatch us. We work with the county through a volunteer agreement. So we're covered by things like uh, disaster service workers, insurance, the vehicles are provided by the county. So anything that we, we, we don't just decide to go out on a call. Like if, if somebody somehow called directly to Inu Search and Rescue, which I'm not quite sure how that would work, we would have to route them to the sheriff department. I mean, rarely, you know, there'll be like a friend of a friend kind of thing and we'll get this phone call. And the answer is just that you need to call 911, man. You know, or push, push that red button on that thing that you have, you know, and go through the process. So mm-hmm. we don't we don't self-dispatch. Mm-hmm. And then I guess I think maybe you alluded to this, but specific, like how big is the team? Oh, yeah. Well, on paper, we have about 90 members on our roster, but the reality is half of those are what I would call active and 20 of those are what I would call overachievers. <laughs> so uh, most of the time, you know, if we get a call out, uh, half of the people who respond are overachievers and the other half are people in the, the uh, you know, kind of just dabbling space. Yeah. Does it, because the county is so massive, does where the call out happens, like end up changing the makeup of who shows up pretty significantly? Yes and no. We, the, I mean, the majority of the team lives right in the Bishop area, but Mount Whitney is an hour's drive from Bishop. And there are a few team members who live closer to Mount Whitney. And so depending on the call, especially if it's a foot-based sort of access kind of situation, then typically People in uh, who live in Lone Pine and people on the team will start responding there. But it's also rare that our, our missions are entirely foot-based, which I think we'll get to when we talk about this particular incident. But a lot of times there's good reason to start a, a ground crew rolling uh, just because we don't really know if we're going to be able to get a helicopter or really what the situation is. So we always call that a, a hasty team. So get the hasties going. And sometimes they're there first, sometimes they're not. But it's good to know that we at least have boots on the ground heading towards the problem. Yeah, for sure. And you mentioned that a lot of your call outs, maybe even half you said, I think, are on Mount Whitney. What are, if you could elaborate a little more about like how, like how many call outs do you think you guys get a year? And what is the range of accidents that you guys are addressing? <laughs> uh, I just giggle because the, the, the range is huge. So, but I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you, I'll just I'll give you a, a typical idea. So let's talk about Mount Whitney a little bit. So Mount Whitney is popular because it's the highest peak in the lower 48 states. So everybody wants to climb Mount Whitney. And for better or for worse, a really great trail exists to the top of Mount Whitney. So in the summer months when snow is not an issue and the trail is melted out, which is going to be very late this summer, by the way, because we have we had such a big winter. But uh, for better or worse, it's got a beautiful trail at the top. It's 11 miles each way. And uh, so that makes it so that at least superficially, it would seem that anyone who's fit and inspired can go hike Mount Whitney. But of course, that's rarely the case, that it's snow-free or without thunderstorms or that people don't have problems with the altitude. So typical Mount Whitney call might just be someone who is gung-ho but maybe unprepared and they get to the top and they get altitude sick and they just, they need some help. The next level up, and that, that I guess the first category there is rare, but we get those. More commonly, some sort of mishap occurs. So somebody falls and they sprain their pinky or they sprain their ankle and they actually legitimately need some help. Not that altitude people, altitude problems don't need legitimate help, but that's just not as common. And it's actually more easily solved by passersby and things like that. I mean, that, that person really just needs to get down. Mm-hmm. But once in a while, someone will have a mishap and they, they're incapacitated for whatever reason. And so they need help. So that's that's probably 80% of our work on Mount Whitney is a sprained or broken ankle, twisted knee. And Mount Whitney has the trail that I've described, but it also has a very popular climbers, in quotes, side of the mountain that we call the Mountaineers route, which has some technical routes as well. And so we do get incidents over there. And those tend to be more serious because they involve more, more there's more fall potential over there. So uh, this year, heavy snow year, we've seen accidents related to slips on snow. And that's quite a bit of what happens up there. Do you have like a ballpark number of how many? 
So we do we get anywhere between thirty five and fifty or even sixty callouts in a year, and I'm going to say five to ten of those are uh, they they wind up not being really uh, there's there, there was not really a need for a callout. Maybe we get once every couple of years we get a major search that blows up, and by that I mean if we don't find somebody in the first 24 hours of a search, usually they call for mutual aid. So other counties will come in. And so when it goes big, there'll be 50 to hundred searchers here. So once every couple of years, we get one of those, somebody gets lost in the desert or just didn't come back to camp. They went for a little walk and I don't, who, geez, who knows what happened. And then, uh, you know, this, this is sort of a little PSA for, uh, for listeners as well is, uh, we have this, it's, it's not a joke, but we joke about probably, I would say 90% of our innocence starts with the party decided to split up. And then something else happened, right? Or two other things happened. And so there you, there you go. That's how, that's how the accident chain began. Yeah. I mean, that's how it works in the movies too, right? So we exactly. should learn our lesson. <laughs> yeah, we really should. Yep. You should just uh, like get a temporary tattoo as part of your wilderness permit. It just goes on your forehead or the back of your hand so you can look at it. Yeah. Okay. So let's get into the, the meat of the story. So there was a mission on Mount Eberson, I believe. I find it really interesting as as the American Alpine Club, we're reporting about accidents a lot, but we really dive into like what caused the accident and like kind of what were the circumstances and the decision making and the like all of that context that's more about the accident than the rescue. But in your situation, search and rescue, you kind of just like find yourself getting very little information initially, and then you have to kind of sort through, figure it out, like decide what's going on. So I mean, as much as you know about like what caused the accident, please share. But I also think it's really important for listeners to realize like a lot of people, when they get that call out text or call, all they know is there's a person on this trail or they're in this location and they're hurt and that's it, right? (laughs) It's true. Sometimes you don't even know that. Let's start with what did you know when you got this call out? What, where were you and what were you doing? Sure. Well, first I'll answer uh, the big picture. Like you said, on search and rescue, one of the one of the fascinating things, and really as someone who works in uh, sort of a team building and professional development world from time to time, one of the really fascinating things about a search and rescue response is sometimes you don't know how many injured people there are. You may not know how many subjects there are. You certainly don't know the extent of the injuries or severity. I mean, all search and rescue boils down to a access and transportation problem. So how do you solve those two problems? So you don't often know what access is going to be. Once you solve that problem, you often don't know what transport is going to be. Is it a helicopter or some technical system that you devise? You certainly don't know uh, what rack and hardware to bring. You know, do we need uh, one through three Camelot or do we bring everything? Or, you know, you can only bring so much, particularly, well, whether it's a helicopter or on foot, uh, weight is always an issue. So there's a lot of mystery, <laughs> really. And uh, just how you approach it with uh, both confidence, confidence in your training and, and uh, your teammates. You know that you can come up with a solution, but you don't always know what the solution is going to be. Looking back after a mission, there's always things that you would do differently in hindsight, but it's only a series of decisions. You make the best decision you can. So on this particular mission, the way it played out for me was I happened to be at my store at the time. I got a phone call from the sheriff department. And this is often how it goes when they suspect there's a really technical a mission that's going to involve special skills or be technical or of long duration. They'll call one of the senior trainers, which I happen to be, or senior team leaders, and they'll just kind of run by the scenario. And in this case, uh, this is what we knew. Uh, we have an in-reach activation. This would be maybe... 2 p.m. on a Friday afternoon, as I recall, late May. We have an in-reach activation report of one subject with a broken leg, a party of three, very high up on the waterfall route on Mount Emerson, which is a technical climb. You know, I suppose the guidebook headline would be something like uh, grade three or four, five, six, but that those numbers kind of belie the the, the true alpine sense of a climb like that. So, you know, to me, it sounded like a pretty exposed group with a serious injury up high on a route late in the day. And then uh, not incidentally to our response was bad weather was forecast, even though it was May at that elevation around here, it can still be pretty chilly. And a small weather event was forecast. It looked like it was going to be chilly. The headlines were windy, possibly some snow. It looked like bad helicopter weather to me. So that's what we knew. Yeah. And so then what were some of the first actions you take from there? Right. So what happens is, um, geez, it's, it's late in the day. What should we do? So my initial assessment was, of course, yes, try for a helicopter, but I bet you a helicopter is not going to work. Therefore, we should do a call up for our team 
and call for people who are helicopter trained, technical trained, and potentially prepared to be the night out in uh, in that environment. So usually what happens then is the call out will happen. And, you know, we all get a cell phone call, a text and a Slack message. It all happens at the same time. So you can always tell when your phone blows up, it's like, oh, there must be some kind of, some kind of thing happening. And then we convene at our uh, facility, which we call the hut. So in, in, in my mind, every time I say that it's capital H-U-T, but the whole thing is in quotes. So uh, we all meet at the hut. And uh, in this case, you know, you, this is another part of the mystery. You don't know who or how many people are going to respond. So from, uh, from a team standpoint, you know your teammates, but you know, it's, it's a different team every time. So the, the group of responders is almost always, you know, in one way or another different. So six of us respond. The clock is ticking. So by now it's maybe 3.30, 4 o'clock. And uh, we learned that a helicopter's en route. And so at this point, there's always a choice. Do you send people right now on foot, just depending on, you know, like maybe the helicopter changes its mind or they've got some sort of mechanical issue or, you know, it's a it's a highway patrol helicopter that we work with and they've, they've got a lot of priorities. And so, you know, if they get a highway pileup you know, on, while they're traveling to us, they might decide, well, we've got five hurt subjects here and only one hurt subject in Bishop, we might have to change our mind. So we never really know until they uh, they arrive. But in this case, they did arrive, but it, it takes an hour and a half for them to get here. So this is another thing I want listeners to understand is the, the chain of events that happens when you press that button on the, your emergency uh, spot device or whatever you're using. It takes a while for it all to, to play out. You know, the, the call has to get routed through call centers eventually to the responsible sheriff or whatever it is. And then there's not just a helicopter spun up at the airport waiting to come get us. You know, in this case, uh, Apple Valley is their base. And like I said, it's an hour and a half away. So that gave us some time to plan. So we worked on our plan A, which of course is the helicopter comes, uh, they pick one of us up, they lower us via hoist to the uh, injured people and it all works out. But uh, I didn't think that was going to happen. So we worked pretty hard on a plan B and and we got to work on our whiteboard and we sketched it out. So, and by the way, at this point, we still haven't gotten any further clarification on exactly where they are, the true nature of the injuries or, you know, how how the subject was doing. And so, um, you know, it feels like time is of the essence when there's communication problems, especially. So we sketched out our plan B on our whiteboard which was clearly going to involve climbing the route with all our equipment, accessing the subject, packaging them in a litter, and then lowering that litter back down the route to the base where the rest of our team would have non-technical access with a wheeled litter to wheel the person out. So uh, there really was no plan C, but uh, I had a pretty good sense that plan B was it. So we honed in on our sketch, how many people would it take minimum to implement this plan B. So we need, like, let's think about the descent part, which is the technical part of all that. Access is, uh, well, let's just say it's relatively straightforward and it involves technical climbing, yes, and carrying up a gear. But once you get, uh, you know, ropes fixed and things like that, that that part I think is pretty straightforward. But the lowering was going to have to look like this. We use a, a two rope system. So there's a redundant system. So in other words, you might think of it as a a main weighted line lowering the litter and then a belay line as a backup. In, in our system, they're actually both weighted. So there's there's two systems in parallel. So each of those systems has a descent control. Think of that as like a lowering device or a rappel device, something like that, causing friction to, to take the load, the weight of, of the litter. And then because it's kind of broken, funky terrain, not, not super steep, the litter itself was going to need people to help move it through the terrain. So probably one person on either side of the litter, which would be oriented vertically. That is, um, the patient's head was uphill and their feet downhill. And then one person at the feet. So three people on the litter, the subject themselves, two people doing descent control, uh, one person going down and establishing anchors. And that added up to six search and rescue people. So I looked around the room, one, two, three, four, five, I guess I'm number six. I guess I'm going to <laughs> And uh, so we had enough people. And then the the last question was, look, you guys, this is going to be a a long, cold, hard mission. Just double check with yourself. Are you up for it? Because it's, Mm -hmm. it is a thing that's, uh, you know, everyone has uh, the right uh, absolute veto power for themselves if if they want to go or if they, if they can go and uh, everybody's thumbs up. So the helicopter shows up and it's not like we draw straws, but we look around the room and we go, okay, power is uh, always an issue when it's the heat of the day. The helicopter can only fly so high. Who's the lightest? So we look around the room and guess what? Todd's the lightest. 
but he's also the most uh, familiar with Mount Emerson and, you know, as a technical trainer. So I, I don't know if I drew the long straw, or the short straw, but I get to go first or I have to go first. And we fly out there and we, uh, I had a pretty good idea where they were and uh, we found them pretty quickly and the helicopter did a power check. And I would say that was exciting. And the, uh, uh, let's just say that the helicopter failed the power check and we quickly realized we were unable to hoist. And so uh, plan B was almost immediately implemented. And so plan B was uh, let's drop Todd off as close as we can and we'll go shuttle everybody else in all their gear. And so um, this at this point, the operation changed a little bit. So I get dropped off and I start making our way to the base of the climb. Actually, I think I waited for the, the next person up because I knew he would have himself an extra gear to carry. So I waited for the helicopter to come. And then, yeah, Ben and I started working our way over towards the route. And meanwhile, I think a round trip was about 20 minutes. And so the helicopter could carry one person in gear or two people without very much gear. And I think we ended up doing something like five shuttles. And so as it got dark, Ben and I approached the base of the climb, the start of the climb, and the last helicopter shuttle made its way up there. At this point, it was um, super windy, only to get windier, and hmm. probably probably low 40s, I would say, chilly. So our plan was we would basically lead 300-foot ropes up the route and fix them in place so subsequent search and rescue members could ascend send up the ropes rather than having to climb our lead pitches all over again. And so this way, uh, we strung ropes up all the way up. So I think we did three, three 300-foot ropes and ran out of rope because supplies are still working their way up our fixed ropes. So it just so happened that when we ran out of rope, the last bit up to the subject was easy enough that I felt comfortable doing it without a rope. So I soloed it up to the, uh, to the subject and I got there about a quarter to 10 in the dark. That's not fun. Like you're just getting to the subject and there's a lot more to do and it's already dark. It's a hard night, man. I mean, yeah, we, we knew we were going to be out all night and feel like, you know, like I mentioned earlier, I, I, I am a distance runner. I do ultra, ultra events. I just did a hundred on Saturday, you know, run through the night. And so I've learned how to do that. And, you know, I, I felt like I was coaching the others too. Maybe haven't had as much experience, you know, just, just the mental space you have to get into yeah. to stay out all night. And there's two other things that I want to mention just about just the, just about being there. Maybe a third would just be just imagining what it was like to be the the subjects that we were there. There was, it was a party three, you know, they were, I think they were reasonably well-prepared clothing wise for the weather during the day. Maybe they didn't anticipate how cold it could get with the weather that was coming. Of course they didn't plan on spending the night. So they were in uh, lightweight, long pants, lightweight, like windbreakers, but it was knock you over windy by this point. And then well into the low 40s or upper 30s, just just very chilly. So the, the other two things, one, search and rescue, our team has a history on this route. We had a call out a couple of years earlier and uh, on that call out, which I, I don't need to go into the details of what why we were there, but two of our team members did wind up spending the night and kind of a similar night. It was much warmer, but it was super windy and, and uh, the wind naturally dislodged a rock and had gotten light. I think they'd spent the night, had gotten light, it was super windy and kind of had this miserable bivy. And as it got light, uh, one of them heard the sound of a rock coming. And so he yelled rock. And the other guy had time to look up and see it and dodge, but it hit him in his right arm, badly breaking his right arm. So uh, all of a sudden we had what we call an iwi, which is an incident within an incident. (laughs) And it sounds really funny, like, ew, an iwi. Uh, (laughs) And this this was really an iwi, a nasty one. And uh, so we had this massive uh, search and rescue response to get this hurt guy off. And uh, he ended up making a full recovery, but it was a very serious accident. And so with that sort of hanging in my memory of, of, you know, what it was like when that happened, we just felt, I felt really exposed. I felt like uh, we really had to consider, you know, was it worth going through the night to, to make this happen or could we wait until tomorrow? And I, I think we all had decided this was not a thing that could wait overnight because it was so cold. So we decided to go for it, mm-hmm. but it was, it was, um, I, I, I would say, at least the way my mind was processing it, I didn't even want to think about it. The, the hazard of rockfall and the wind and the, and the environment, I just had to kind of put that in a, compartmentalize that a little bit, mm-hmm. not really think about it, but it was was definitely hanging over our head. And so the, the second thing was just, which you know I've, I've talked around a little bit, but just the, the conditions of taking care of ourselves as well as these other people, it was just, it was very challenging weather conditions. It was, it was not super fun. No. <laughs> After climbing up uh, all that distance, which is something like, 
don't know, we ended up doing seven full length lowers. So let's, let's just say it was 1500 feet, give or take. I was super happy to uh, finally encounter the subjects and discover that indeed one person was hurt, obviously broken leg. And the other two were doing pretty good. They were chilly. And, but it was nice to have that phase end. And I knew that uh, all our supplies, our assets and uh, of, of equipment and responders were uh, on their way up. And so we we're about to shift into um, transportation mode, which once you get that going, you know, it's, it's a tedious isn't quite the right word because you're so engaged. It doesn't seem like it's taking forever, but there's, there's a lot going on, but it, I guess it's uh, at the same time focusing and uh, just being super careful and um, you know, just making sure that everybody's doing everything right. Uh, two in the morning, you know, just regular old safety checks, I think aren't even good enough. So we need to really be keeping an eye on each other and uh, double checking things. So I'll just say, so I, I, I got to the patient and she seemed to be actually in pretty good spirits. And I had part of the equipment that I had carried up is a extremity vacuum splint and vacuum splints are just so nice compared to uh, even your best improvised splint. And they, they had put a pretty good improvised splint on, and I was actually impressed. It was pretty effective. But uh, I said, you know, I think we should swap out your improvised splint for this vacuum splint. It's just, it's going to serve everybody and you so much better for on the way down. You know, we've got a long ways of lowers to do. It's going to be bumpy and moving around a bunch. And this will protect your leg a whole lot better. So, um, so let's do that. And so we did that and it was not super comfortable for her, I would say. I think she would agree, but it, it did pay off. And it was, there was immediate relief once we got that on and, uh, I had brought up a sleeping bag and uh, we got her all tucked into the sleeping bag. And probably the most technical aspect of the whole operation was moving the patient into the litter and then the litter over to where we wanted our alignment for the lowers to be. Mm -hmm. And so let me talk about alignment a little bit. So it was really important to us to find alignments, which is just, uh, you know, how is gravity going to move the litter, the load of the litter and the attendants? Remember, there's three attendants. How's gravity going to move them down the hill? in a way that they don't knock rocks on each other or the person who put the anchor in. You know, again, just to go over our sequence, we would have a person go down on rappel and find a convenient place to build an anchor to do the transition to the next lower. Mm -hmm. But high priority was trying to get that spot out of line of fire of rockfall. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Ben would go down and find that spot and build anchors and then radio up. Okay. I got an anchor. And then, uh, the three attendants plus the subject in the litter would go down to that spot. And they're, of course, being lowered by the, uh, let's just call them the descent control people, of which there were two, one on each side. And then the cycle would repeat. And so we did that seven times. But in order to get from where the subject happened to be, where they where they hurt themselves, to uh, to our rope alignment was a distance of about 40 feet and kind of slabby. And, you know, it's just really hard to move a litter in that terrain. So uh, we figured it out, but that was probably the most physically challenging as well as technically challenging this sequence of short lowers and just physical brute strength to get the litter over to where we needed it to be. And then, uh, then we had it moving. Yeah. So is that like prioritization of awareness of rockfall, which is really standard, or is that very specific to because of the rockfall potential on Mount Emerson? I don't think the rockfall hazard on Mount Emerson is really unique to Mount Emerson. I mean, the, okay. the route itself, I mean, being low angle on the Alpine environment, yeah, those kind of places catch rocks and there's all sorts of little basins for rock and stuff like that. So this, I think, I think the, that was probably our top priority in terms of uh, risk, risk management that evening, but surely the, the cold and the, you know, other, other objective hazards were also right up there as well. You know, we were all, I think we were barely prepared for the cold, I would say. I mean, we took what we could, but kind of, you can, I mean, we are, we had, you know, I don't know, like 1,100 feet of rope with us and a litter. And my favorite was the people last up the line. Somebody down at base had time to uh, think this through and um, amazing brilliance logistically ordered pizza and made sure <laughs> that it got there in time for the last crew who flew in to bring pizza up. So I didn't care if it was in a gallon Ziploc bag and cold. Man, that was amazing. So uh, yeah, it was really nice to get the litter over to the alignment and, and then be greeted with Ziploc bags of pizza and thermoses of hot water. Yeah. Yeah. I was wondering like the food element and not like getting nutritionally deficient, like as you're doing this at 2 p 2 a.m., you know, that yeah. seems like really important. <laughs> you got to take care of yourself. Yeah. If you start, start to start getting behind on food, then uh, yeah, you don't have the energy to do what you need to do. So yeah. So how long did these long series of repels with the litter take? Or lowers with the litter take. Well, we we hit ground at nine a.m. in a snow flurry, 
So uh, yeah, it was it was it was through the night. So you know, we can do the math. I I think there was five of them. So you know, each one each sequence probably took an hour and a half, I guess. But you know, we were trying to be careful, and the the train actually improves as we get down. It gets a little bit steeper and not so much loose rock, and easier for the litter attendants to move the litter. And um, the patient was not heavy, so <laughs> it was just it was more a challenge when we got into sections that were kind of blocky and ledgy that where we had to all three of us lift her up. Mm-hmm. But that part worked pretty well. All right, so. After many, many hours of doing that, you get to the ground (laughs) and then what? (laughs) Oh man, I have never been so happy uh, as I was to hit the ground. I mean, uh, because I I realized that, you know, again, I don't think I ever felt terrified, but, uh, you know, if I'd, if I'd ever sat and stopped and thought about it, like really, you know, checked in with myself, like I would, I would probably have said, yes, this is terrifying. Like the, just knowing that Paul almost got uh, his head taken off by a falling rock two years ago and uh, under similar circumstances. Yeah, I think in, it was in hindsight, it really kind of hit me when I got to the ground. And I don't know if they were tears of joy or tears of terror, but uh, they were there. And also just that uh, we were successful. I mean, the, the whole thing, uh, everything worked as it should. And it was great to look down and see, you know, something like 20 of our teammates working their way up the screen and talus slope to get up to us so they could take over moving the litter. And so, which is, it takes that many people to get a litter down through talus. I think uh, if you've ever been involved in a rescue, you know, it's just, uh, it's not easy to move, you know, even if the litter, the, the, the weight of the litter itself, plus the subject in it, let's just call it 200 pounds. She was not heavy, but the, you know, it was just a lot of, of uh, physical challenge to move that through that kind of train. It's hard. Mm-hmm. But once you get down to the trail, which is uh, probably take an hour to get down to the trail below, we have a wheel that clamps onto the litter. And mm. uh, then it's like, uh, it's like pushing a bike. I mean, it's really, really straightforward. Mm-hmm. And we had a new system that spring, and so it was. Uh, it was good. No, we had practiced with it. Don't get me wrong here, <laughs> but uh, it was fun to to see our new system uh, work so well on the trail. And we just we motored right out. And there was a waiting ambulance, and I think the patient. Uh, <laughs> the only the only little glitch there was uh, she also had a piece of pizza. So when they got her to the hospital, finally they're like, uh, "Well, we can't. You can't have surgery because you you had pizza. <laughs> you, you, had, you had food. So we have to wait for that to move through. So it delayed her like six hours or something, but." Uh, mm-hmm. I talked to her the next day. I think they say it's going to be a full recovery. So, yeah, that's awesome. So you kind of were talking about the feelings of once you hit the ground and like getting through the, you know, the rough night, full like many many hours of that. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about maybe your personal experience or reflect on how the team thinks through like decompressing after like a really tense situation and <laughs> often very terrifying, like you're talking about? <laughs> yeah, I can talk about that. So there are, there are a lot of hard missions and uh, this, this was a very physical mission, but it wasn't because it had a really good outcome. It wasn't emotionally that, that difficult. I think the, it was, like I say, it's sure it was scary. I guess I'll just say it was, it was scary. There's always, there's always some unknowns, but man, just being out in that objective hazard that, that, that takes a lot of energy, but our team and a lot of teams are starting to have what we call a, a resiliency program or a resiliency committee. And so after, after, uh, after a mission like this, there's stages and it's different for every responder. But first of all, we, we go and enjoy a meal together uh, and just kind of decompress like, uh, man, that was amazing. And, you know, talk it through and process the the initial uh, the initial thoughts. There's also a formal debrief. You know, so what worked well, some people call it an after action report. So what worked well and, you know, without beating ourselves up, you know, in hindsight, you know, where were the decision points where maybe a different decision might have been helpful and let's go all the way back to the first decision. Should we have done this mission? You know, should we have waited for a helicopter to do mm-hmm. it the next day? Could we have minimized? Could, could, did we go with the minimum number of people? And, you know, these are these are the kind of questions that, that that we ask ourselves. As possibly a tangent to your question, I would say with respect to should we have gone? Uh, we did not have helicopter flyable weather, and for two more days, so I don't think it would have worked out super well. Mm-hmm. You know, so I don't. I think I think that was the right call. And, you know, each individual has to answer that question for themselves. Was it uh, a reasonable risk for me to take? There, mm-hmm. I, I hate to rely on luck, but I think you, you have to get a little bit lucky in that kind of environment. Um, there was some rockfall. It just didn't happen to hit us. Mm. So, but the resiliency thing is important, particularly with, with really hard missions uh, where the outcomes maybe weren't so good or, well, yeah, but that, with the kind of mission where, well, where, where people don't survive or if somebody gets hurt on the team, like when... Our, our colleague got hurt two years ago. That takes a mental toll. And the way our team works is 
you basically are assigned a, a resiliency buddy kind of behind the scenes. You don't actually know. You get the call like, hey, how are you doing? I've been assigned to check into you. Or I, I would have anyway, but uh, I would have anyway. And the, there's checklists. And this is used in military contexts, emergency room contexts, hospital contexts, other other stressful, other other certain contexts where there's, there's potential for stress. And so there's the idea of stress injury. And you all have done uh, amazing podcasts on this as well as as well as others. So there's there's this uh, green, yellow, red continuum, and you know there's certain things that you look for. Like, are you sleeping okay? Are you even after three or four days? Are you still really thinking about the this hard mission? Mm-hmm. And so if so, you know, there's maybe there's actions that need to be taken. So I think we do a, we do a pretty good job managing stress and resiliency. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I have a, a couple more questions about kind of like the general search and rescue experience. Thank you for taking us through all of the decision-making and like the, the play-by-play of that mission. It sounds like it was quite a night. Um, and, but like, like in terms of the systems, everything went really well. What, what's the best part about being on search and rescue? What's the worst part for you? <laughs> the best part. Yeah. I'm sure everybody would answer that a little differently. There's a lot of best parts. So it's really fun to go to trainings and, you know, when everybody, I see everybody progressing and help us uh, keep moving our collective knowledge, institutional knowledge forward. I think obviously when there's good outcomes and, you know, there's, there's most missions have good outcomes. Okay. But there's a lot of missions where it's like, you know, they probably could have crawled out or they, you know, a bystander could have got them out. But there's the few missions where you really do need some technical intervention. And it's really, it's really a high level thing. Like this took a helicopter with a trained, extremely skilled crew with, trained SAR responders who know how to work around helicopters, who are capable of climbing up into the train, managing their own safety in the dark, in the cold, successfully getting to a patient, successfully getting them to the bottom, and then seeing that she's back to climbing at a high level uh, a year later. You know, that's a, that's, that's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> For me, that's the, the best. Mm-hmm. So um, the bad parts of SAR is search and rescue gets called for all sorts of different things. And, you know, all sorts of different people use the mountains for all sorts of different reasons. And so the very worst SARs are when um, someone decides to go to the mountains to kill himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it seems, yeah, that would be really hard. You know, we deal with fatal accidents and the worst parts of search and rescue are, you know, if there's a silver lining to recovering somebody's remains, it's you're doing the very best thing you can for their family under those circumstances. Mm-hmm. But nobody likes those kinds of missions. Of course not. I mean, it's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, I've never heard anybody. I've talked to a number of search and rescue folks now um, through Rocky Talkie and I've never heard anybody be that real about it. So I think I really appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Well, like I say, you can do with it what you will, but I have to tell you, I'm, this is challenging for me because I've had some hard missions in the last month. Okay. Mm-hmm. Have you noticed trends in rescues? What would you tell hikers, climbers, or skiers if you could? You know, we're, we're always trying to tease out trends and I've actually been listening to some podcasts. There was one recently, I think, uh, I'm not sure if it was you guys or uh, Ashley's thing. The sharp end. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not a data scientist. It's a little hard for me to speculate on on trends. I mean, we have a short term trend right now of a lot of snow based accidents, mm. and there, there's this, there's always this trend of like I I think at the beginning of this, I uh, I chuckled over uh, this thing, and then the party split up. So you know, like we've known since like the 1400s that it was dangerous to split up, right? Probably a lot longer ago than that, and so. Uh, you know, there's a trend. Uh, more more callouts are initiated through uh, satellite communication devices. That's one thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, there's there's no there's no trend right now that sticks out for me. I, I have to mm-hmm. say, I should have thought about that a little bit more. <laughs> All good. <laughs> okay, here's another question: What do outdoor enthusiasts not realize about how search and rescue teams work? What's like a wis- misconception that you wish more people understood? Well, I think I've touched on this a little bit too, but I think that people, they don't, I, don't, I know it'd be hard to imagine that people expect rescue to be instant, <laughs> but we, we do get people who have requested a rescue who then start calling after an hour complaining that, you know, where are you guys? And, you know, it, it just through these communication devices, like satellite communication doesn't work perfectly. The in-reach is, you know, there's always a delay, even in the best conditions, there's often an inexplicable delay. 
there's it's sort of like um and we've all had like weird texts that we've sent somebody you know like a reply show up like three days later or you know things like that so it's the communication is difficult but but yeah that's what it comes down to is man, this this can take a long time like i think this rescue that we've been talking about in this podcast in this interview that was really like best case like mm-hmm. i think the incident happened at one thirty in the afternoon they talked a little bit about it among themselves called some friends they actually had cell service initially called somebody, you know, what, what do you think we should do? And by, let's just say 2 p.m., you know, plus or minus 20 minutes, they had decided to press the button, initiate mm-hmm. a, a rescue. And so let me just describe what happens when someone presses that button just real briefly. So when okay. you press the button and you, and you call for a, a rescue, it goes to, uh, let's just, there's other satellite devices out there, but let me just stick with Garmin. They're all basically the same in terms of what happens next. So it goes to a Garmin call center in uh, Texas, I think it is. And so then they have to decide, is this legit? So they'll, they'll text you back like, Hey, what exactly is going on? Then they have to go think about and discover where, where are you and who's the authority there? So in California, it goes to the office of emergency services and then OES will contact the sheriff in the relevant County. So like, these are not just like, boom, 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 boom. (laughs) It's, it's, It's not, you know, you have to actually find a human. And then not, not that it takes forever, but you know, it takes minutes. And then the sheriff here will usually try, you know, it's a sheriff deputy who's coordinating search and rescue will try to con- communicate with the party directly. Well, sometimes they've turned off their in reach by then, or it's run out of battery or for whatever reason, the communication is challenging. Okay. So let's just say best case, by the time all that chain of command communication happens and the sheriff has decided, yeah, there's a incident, we need to start acting let's just say half an hour. That's, that's like best case. So even if you're in a place that has a helicopter, you know, like an environment like uh, the front range in Colorado, where there's more helicopters and things are a little bit more compressed, the helicopter is not just sitting there waiting they have other things to do. These are expensive assets. And so um, I'm giving you a long answer to your question, but rescue is not immediate. It's not guaranteed. It can take a long time. Mm. Helicopters are very weather and, and altitude and heat dependent. And you can't, you can't count on them. I mean, they're amazing machines with amazingly skilled crew. When the conditions are right, they're very effective and essential tools. But, you know, we've had weather periods here where it could be days before a helicopter can come. And if we can't get a helicopter, like we just had a, a call out the other day, I won't, won't go into detail, but had there not been a helicopter, it would involve the ground team going from an elevation of 5,500 feet to 12,200 feet and in snow and with equipment. And how long do you think that takes? Like even the best athletes in the world, that's going to take eight or 10 hours. Mm -hmm. And by the time they get there, they're going to be exhausted. At least they got the gear there. You know, so this stuff takes a long time. Mm -hmm. So this is why you should be prepared. So you should come up with the, you know, like I think the old 10 essentials list, maybe we've made some changes to that list, but there are certain things like you need to look at to the place you're planning on going and think, do I have what I need to spend the night? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, as we're running low on time, I wanted to ask you a few last questions. Sure. So Inyo uh, County Search and Rescue is a finalist for the Rocky Talkie Award, for um, SAR Rocky Talkie Award. How is that, the winnings, <laughs> going to impact <laughs> Inyo's ability to operate? Well, Inyo County Search and Rescue uh, is – Dependent on donations from the community that we serve, which are, is basically anyone that goes outdoors in Inyo County. And we use that money a lot of different ways. We put it towards medical tra- emergency medical training for our responders. We put it towards equipment to keep things in good shape. The county provides vehicles, but then uh, they, they don't outfit them for search and rescue needs. So that is a huge expense every year. You know, we just get these bare bones vehicles that we then have to upgrade with tires and suspension and, you know, other equipment. We buy all our own gear. We buy, we buy the ropes. We go through a lot of ropes. You can imagine the hardware. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, that, that any, any funds will, are, are certainly put to good use. So we're mm-hmm. not, we're not, uh, we're not hand to mouth, but, uh, the next best thing. So, uh, <laughs> okay. And I'm, I wanted to end with a fun question because it is my theory that, Search and rescue folks, one of the, you know, it's not the only reason that they're on search and rescue teams, but it's definitely one of them is that they like geeking out with the gear and the systems. 
<laughs> so what piece of search and rescue gear or system are you particularly psyched on at the moment? So I think your premise is accurate. I'm not sure I'm one of the te- technical geeks, though. Uh, okay. It's funny because you know we've we've got like uh, the radio guys, and they they just geek out of this stuff. They're like, oh, you know what? We need you know our communication capabilities would be so much better. This and that, and you know, so then my background is all technical, and I'm not sure mountain guides make the best search and rescue people because search and rescue is a lot different than uh, than climbing and mountain guiding. There's a lot of technical stuff. I do geek out on some of the systems, and you know, I. I admonish myself, like, why can't I always remember how to do a seven to one mechanical advantage system without looking at the picture? But I'll tell you, the piece of gear I'm geeking out on that I really like is uh, we got these new helmets, you know, and I love my uh, my personal climbing helmet. It's great for SAR, but it doesn't talk to the helicopters very well. So we have these new helmets that have uh, headphones and they, muff- they muffle the sound and, and then they allow you to, uh, you know, not, not just muffle the sound, but to talk to the, the crew. And it's really revolutionized participating from the helicopter because you can help, you can help instead of just like tapping on the, the flight officer's shoulder and pointing, you know, you can uh, say, Hey, look out the window. What's that blue thing? Yeah. So it would be the, uh, maybe, maybe not the super geeky answer you were looking for, but uh, I really love those headphones. So. That's definitely seems super <laughs> functional and helpful. <laughs> yeah, it is. Awesome. Okay. Thank you so much, Todd. Do you have anything else or any last thoughts you want to share? No, it's been fun. I really appreciate it, Hannah. And uh, yeah, I mean, at this point, I have to decide just to thank you and sign off or probably go for another two hours. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, thank you so much for everything that you do for the outdoor community. Like seriously, it means a lot to all climbers that search and rescue folks like you are out there. And uh, I hope you feel that appreciation from the community. Yeah, well, it's, one, it's one reason I think we all do it is uh, climbing and mountaineering has given us so much and we like to give back. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Todd. Thank you. Rocky Talkies are backcountry radios designed by a small team of climbers in Denver. The radios are lightweight and rugged and clip directly to your harness or pack with a built-in Mammut ultralight carabiner. Since launch in 2019, Rocky Talkie has donated $2 per radio to search and rescue teams. Like good communication, these volunteer teams save lives and provide critical peace of mind in the backcountry. Learn more at rockytalkie.com. This podcast is presented by Outdoor Research and Rocky Talkie. Today's show was hosted by me, Hannah Provo, and produced by Sierra McGivney and Shane Johnson. Please consider supporting your local search and rescue team in whatever way you can, and share your stoke by voting for the most inspiring mission of the 2023 winners at rockytalkie.com slash pages slash 2023 Award.